Welcome to Soccer 101, the podcast where we scratch the soccer question itches that you never knew you had. To quote early 2000s alt-rockers Stained, it's been a while since we've been on the feed, but we're back with a hot topic to discuss. No, that's not the hot topic where Stained fans bought all their clothes. It's this one. The Chinese Super League. What happened there? Less than a decade ago, Chinese soccer was poised to become a global behemoth. David Beckham became a league ambassador. Clubs were paying outrageous transfer fees and salaries for players like Oscar, Paulinho and Hulk. Carlos Tevez was reportedly earning over $800,000 a week, while Fabio Cannavaro was earning around $15 million a year as a coach. Chinese President Xi wanted to make China a global superpower in the world's biggest game. But now seems the bubble has burst. A lot of the big imported stars have left due to salary caps and import taxes. Big teams, some of them have gone bust. Salaries at many teams have gone unpaid. And the league has not become a global player as yet. So, what happened? My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me to answer that question is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello, I'm excited. It's good to be back. It's good to have Soccer 101 back up and running, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. And I'm excited to talk about this topic because I remember when it felt like, oh, wow, China is going to be the next world power when it comes to football. I'm not quite as confident of that these days. Uh, I'm not either. Graham Ruthven, hello, sir. Are you confident of that? Um, Not at this moment, no. But as, as Taylor references there, there was a time where and I think we'll discuss this in depth a bit more, but people like Arsene Wenger, Antonio Conte, they, they were all quite fearful that, obviously from a Premier League perspective, um, that China was going to usurp the Premier League as the number one global league. It felt like they were buying everyone and anyone, and it didn't really lead to anything as we will detail, I think. Indeed, it was a very exciting time of rumours and transfer fees about five or six years ago. But let's get some background on the Chinese Super League. Uh, Graham, it seems to me it was around sort of 2012-ish when we started getting noise from China, from mm-hmm. Shanghai Shenhua. That was the sort of the big team. It was Anelka and Drogba, I think, yeah. who joined at that point. And that was when we first, the, the ears pricked up and thought, oh, hello, they're spending money. Indeed. And, and I think you also had Lucas Barrios. That was another big move that I remember at that time. He was... Uh, a, a high quality striker for Dortmund and he goes to China rather than going to one of the kind of elite level European clubs at the time. But I'm going to actually go back a little bit further than 2011-2012. I'm going to go back to when the first senior soccer league in China was created in 1951 just to provide a little bit of context of soccer in China in general. So from there you have various different iterations of that division until 1994 when China creates its first professional soccer league. I'm sure another country created a professional soccer league around that time as well, but I can't think which. Uh, that league, it, it, that league had varied success depending on your measure. It did at least make people in China aware of soccer. They don't have that that soccer culture that exists in many countries around the world. Um, I know MLS was largely designed to create a soccer culture, but I'd even argue that China had less of a soccer culture than the US at that point. And so it, it, it in terms of attendances and so on, it, it maybe wasn't that successful. It was also hit with corruption scandals and allegations of match, match fixing. And we will come back to that as well later in this, in this story. And um, with more uh, tales of corruption, which seems to be a common thread through a lot of the, the Chinese leagues that have, that have been and gone. And then you had the establishment of the Chinese Super League just after the turn of the millennium. First season of the CSL was played in 2004. 
it initially struggled to shake off a lot of the controversies that I mentioned there. There's low crowds across the league as well. It goes from 12 teams to 16 teams, then back to 15 teams, then back to 16 teams. So there's a lot of um, coming and going in terms of the size of the league and, and its progression from there as well. And then, um, Ryan, when you mentioned 2011, 2012, when some players start to go there, that is prompted by a Chinese government effort to clean up the image of the country's biggest soccer league. Arrests are made at that point um, for on the on corruption allegations. The leadership of the Chinese Football Association was basically cleared out. A lot of those people are arrested as well. And um, it did achieve an initial level of success, as you say, Drogba, Anelka, Freddie Canute, another big-name striker going to China at that time, Lucas Barrios, and some of those clubs like Gangzhou Evergrande and uh, Shanghai Shenhua, they start to become, that's maybe when I, as a football fan, start to become aware of those clubs. They do start to make some some big signings, and then that leads to a, an even bigger boom further down the line. Does indeed. Uh, Taylor, it seems like the real boom when we really started to notice what was going on with China, I sort of put it around between 2015 and 2017 when mm-hmm. uh, I think like the transfer record was being broken several times a day and all the, these large bids were coming in for, for big players. And there was this concern in Europe and perhaps the Americas as well that, that um, China was going to <laughs> vacuum up all these players. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of that as well dates to uh, uh, Xi Jinping uh, taking over as the head of the Chinese government. It, it is, I believe, in 2012. He becomes the general secretary for the Communist Party, chairman of the Central Military Commission. He becomes president in 2013 and, by all accounts, is a football fan and feels like that is an area that China should be competing, could be competing, would bring them more recognition, more renown, and also could be a way to increase uh, economic uh, activity, potentially, if you are creating this league where everybody's interested, where there's tons of money, where there's broadcast rights, I think felt like it was possible for China to expand in the footballing world. And as far as I understand it, when uh, the president of China says, we should do that, everyone's going to listen. And so then you have giant companies buying clubs, naming those clubs after themselves, throwing a bunch of money at those clubs. Those clubs then go out and throw a bunch of money at other clubs in Europe and elsewhere to bring those players to China. And I think a lot of that comes from the top down. And we start seeing that massive amount of spending, what, $300 million in uh, one winter window. Graham already mentioned some of the names there, but it's coaches as well coming over. And as I said in the beginning, it felt like for a moment, this might be a thing that continues to go on. It seems like China had these aspirations to to make it to the World Cup in 2022, to win the World Cup by, by 2050. And so it started to feel like maybe this is where things are going to go. There is going to be this new global competitor when it comes to the soccer landscape. There, there, was, a, there was a week in, I think it was the winter window of 2017. And, and the, the Chinese, I don't know if this is still the case because they have changed their, their transfer rules, but the Chinese window used to close after the January transfer window. So there was a week where Premier League clubs and European clubs felt like sitting ducks, where Chinese clubs were just coming in with massive offers for players and there was a week I think it was in 2017 where basically every major player in Europe got a massive offer from China the Chinese Super League or the Chinese Super League club there was Zlatan got a big offer a number of players went over there so um, Oscar Graziano Pella, Hulk, Ramirez, Ramirez mm-hmm. uh, Asimov Jan, Dembaba, Odin Agallo, Papi Sisse, yeah. uh, Bale as well was very, very close to going there to the point where Z- Zinedine Zidane in a press conference 
basically said he's gone. He's he's not in my plans yeah. anymore. He's going to the Chinese Super League. Then Real Madrid changed they they changed their demands and he ended up not going. But he was going to be the highest paid player in the world going to to China. And it really felt like there was a point where you're thinking to yourself. Are they genuinely just going out, going to go out and get Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo or something like that? It felt like money was no object. It felt like they could genuinely put one of these players on a three million euro a week contract, something ridiculous like that. And um, yeah, there was genuine fear from a lot of European soccer people that that China was going to take over. Yeah, I, my one of my favorite stats I saw was the current cap that has since come into place was. Uh, now foreign players can be paid a maximum of 2.7 million British pounds per year, which is what Carlos Tevez was making in a month when he was playing in China. <laughs> because there is, yeah, just so much money on offer. Alex Teixeira turning down Liverpool to go play in China. And That's I think right, yeah. a thing that I think is really interesting, though, Graham, a lot of those names you're mentioning and a lot of the articles at the time uh, made this point is that it's not always or the names that ended up going, at least, weren't what maybe MLS or even the A-League were were targeting, were those huge names that were maybe post-30, past their prime, but could still uh, definitely sell some tickets and still obviously play. There were definitely some of those, but it was a lot of sort of like Oscar is an example of a player who was not in the plans for Chelsea at the time, but still uh, was like, I think, 25 or so and a very good player. And I think the idea was we'll bring in these players who are still in their prime or have yet to hit their prime, they will then do that. They will play really well. They'll make our teams better, but they'll also make the players around them better. They'll improve the technical side of things, and then we will slowly build our domestic game, continue to add foreign imports, maybe some high-profile ones, and everything will be wonderful. And that's kind of how it worked for about two years. The, yeah. the thing, I know this is going to sound strange, but the thing that really made people sit up and take note was when they signed players like Graziano Pella and Odin Odin Agallo, who mm-hmm. I know they're not the biggest names, but Agallo was on a both of those players actually at that time were on a, a hot streak in the Premier League. And both of those players you're thinking, well, they could go to a, a you know a Spurs or a Liverpool or a Manchester United. And they're they are very much at the in, at the peak of their career. They've got that one big move in them, you feel and then they go to China instead, and it was it was so easy for China for the Chinese Super League or these clubs to to get these players as well. That was the thing that just made you think they are they can quite easily move up the ladder of the players that they're targeting, and it won't take them much longer to get to the best players in the world. Yeah, I particularly remember that Petla deal and thinking. You know, there was a deliberate pro- uh, strategy of overspending, and that was certainly the case with someone like Pele. He was getting like Ronaldo money to go to go to China, um, yeah. which which was kind of crazy. But you know, overspending and this deliberate strategy may have led to a bubble effect of yeah. sorts. Um, so why don't we talk about the failure and perhaps the bursting of that bubble right after we take this quick break? Back soon. That right there is a good sound because it means another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. Shopify powers millions of businesses to pursue that journey from first sale to full scale. You can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook. I think they've changed the name, but still Facebook. Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Synchronize your online and in-person sales. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. It's more than a store. 
Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash soccer101, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash soccer101 right now. Again, shopify.com slash soccer101, soccer101, all lowercase. Thank you to Shopify for sponsoring today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Truebill. I am in to Truebill. Here is why. Do you know why free trials renew without your consent? Well, you guessed it. It's a business scam out to get you. Don't let greedy corporations pocket your money. Download Truebill to take control of your subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. On average, people save $720 per year with Truebill. That's a lot of money. Because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tab. And your Truebill concierge, they're very fancy, is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. And it is really cool because you will remember that random thing that like, oh yeah, Xbox Live, I was going to use that and never did. Probably don't need to keep paying that every month. Oh, Audible, that renewed, that's fun, don't need that. Truebill can get it out of your way. Truebill has over 2 million users and helped save them over $100 million. That's a lot of money. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash Soccer 101. Go right now, Truebill, T-R-U-E-B. Go right now, T-R-U-E-B-I-L-L dot com slash Soccer 101. All lowercase. It could save you thousands of dollars a year. Truebill.com slash Soccer 101. Soccer 101, welcome back. We are talking about the Chinese Super League, the rise and fall thereof. Um, a strategy in the last 10 years, um, maybe even sooner than that, of uh, overspending to bring in world-class players to uh, the Chinese Football Association actually in 2016. Taylor touched on this, but they set out some long-term goals for China to host the World Cup, to win the World Cup, and to become, and I quote, a first-class soccer superpower all by 2050. And their plan was to uh, have a have a procession of rapid expansion, if you will. And it was done by uh, lots of corporate investment from conglomerates who had some state influence. Some of them were state-owned as well. If you look at Gangzhou Evergrande, for example, the Evergrande there is the Evergrande that's been in the news in the last few months, uh, the real estate conglomerate who've had some real financial issues, so we say, a real estate crash of sorts. Uh, their debts are reported to be around $225 billion, according to The Guardian. Now, Gangzhou Evergrande... With a B. With a B. With a B. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Gangzhou being one of the more successful sides in the CSL, their their logo, by the way, their crest has the um, the, the moniker "Be the Best Forever," which is the greatest um, <laughs> moniker you could ever have as a team, and it's a really cool badge as well. Never um, be bad. Exactly. Be the best forever. I'm not sure they're going to be the best forever, seeing how things are going, but they did twice win the AFC Champions League. They've had managers including Fabio Cannavaro, uh, Luis Felipe Scari, and Marcello Lippi as well. Um, so they are on something of a downturn, and there's been lots of lots of big changes made, Taylor, um, which may have contributed to the downturn of this league. Uh, changes in terms of player import taxes, in terms of salary caps, in terms of even this season, uh, teams are no longer allowed to have company names within yeah. their names. So Gangsu Evergrande, and now just Gangsu, for example. Yeah. I think there's a couple things at play, and I think this is where maybe it is worth 
stating clearly that with China, I hope I'm not saying anything that like is biased in any way, but it's basically it's tough to know what is actually the truth, what is actually going on, because a lot of what I read shaped it as, no, this is a smart restructuring by the Chinese FA because they're realizing the way they were operating wasn't sustainable, wasn't actually going to help development. It was just going to bring in players who were questionable in their motivations, a la Carlos Tevez. And so they wanted to change things up. They wanted to function like real, like normal clubs, existing clubs. That's one way of seeing it. Another way would be to see it as this was, again, a government, if not mandate, then inspired uh, shift. And so if you look at the way clubs start being owned, I think the top seven clubs in the 2010 season all end up getting acquired either by state-owned companies or by privately owned companies. All those privately owned companies are uh, basically focused on real estate or real estate development. I'll mention that, why that's important in a little bit. But yeah. uh, what that means then is you've got all this money coming in, but that becomes a problem because when you have a company owning that club, you don't have the same restrictions you do elsewhere. Roman Abramovich, as, as I understand, cannot just continue to dump a ton of money into Chelsea. That violates some deals. That violates some terms. China less so. And so that's what was basically happening was uh, Guangzhou was the company or Evergrande, the company, would just foot the bill. They would continue to pay that debt. But then as there is a global economic downturn right around 2020 and a little bit before that, potentially, uh, you start to see these companies not have the money necessary to continue to do that. And if you are the Chinese government, you're very nervous about the fact that your giant companies are starting to look a little suspect. Obviously, it's not just because they're financing these clubs, but that doesn't help. Um, so you look at some of the numbers. One stat I saw... Uh, as to why they needed to reduce foreign wages out of the $180 million, uh, which was the average amount spent in 2019 by clubs, 70 to 80% of that was going into the pockets of players. And of that, about 70% of the salaries were going to international players. So they needed to rein in that spending. They needed to make sure that players weren't just coming in, getting money and leaving, which is why they introduced the 100% transfer tax. So if you're bringing in somebody, you're paying a lot of money to do so, they better be worth it and they better be there for the long haul and you basically now have players who some are grandfathered in but you're getting more reasonable acquisitions at a fairer price than you were getting uh with some of the players we've already talked about and 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 the wider context with some of these companies as well in china is that china wanted a lot of these conglomerates and which were as you mentioned there taylor um a lot of them were state-owned, or some of them that weren't state-owned, they were partially state-owned. You know, the, the, the government has a stake in those companies. They basically wanted them to accelerate all areas of the Chinese economy, even if it's not their core business. So a company like Suning, who who owned uh, Jiangsu Suning, and who also owned Inter, those, there was a time when those companies are being encouraged to just get involved in everything. So Suning had a TV station, you know, they have a, a, a phone network, they have retail stores, they own an Italian football club, they own a Chinese football club. And so when the, a few years down the line, when the Chinese government gets worried that these big conglomerates are borrowing too heavily and they're going to tank the economy because of that encouragement they've been given to just get involved in everything and just be the... Uh, the the Chinese version, I guess, you know, have an airline, have a have yeah. a galactic uh, jet, have a, a net phone network, have a Coca Cola. Um, they they get concerned about that, and obviously football becomes one of the the first things to go. You know, there's government pressure for them to sell those clubs, and and Jiangsu Suning, 
they actually won the Chinese Super League in 2020. Within three months, that club is completely dissolved mm-hmm. because Suning are having financial difficulties, which affects Inter, which I think, Taylor, you've got some notes on and how that affected European a soccer few. as a whole as well. And basically, yeah, that club just completely dissolves um, as the as the Chinese champions, which is unusual to yeah. say the least. Uh, between 2020 and 2021, they lost 16 clubs across the top flight. Uh, Zhangzhou FC, as you mentioned there, Graham, uh, four to three months after winning the title, 67 million pounds in debt. Uh, Tianjin, Tianhai, uh, once had World Cup winner Fabio Cannavaro as manager. They had signed Alexander Pato and Alex Witzel. They declared bankruptcy and folded. Uh, and there are interesting stories in there because they were originally uh, Tianjin Quanjian, uh, and that was another company name. The owner of that company is now in prison for selling uh, fake medicine, but that coincides, Ryan, with what you talked about, which was the government moving to have the company names removed from these clubs, so you don't have that connection anymore. But there's a lot of issues around this time. February 2021, uh, Shandong Luneng were thrown out of the Asian Champions League thanks to salaries owed to past employees. So the money is no longer there, uh, both because the government is uh, basically saying you can't just keep throwing money at these things. You have to pare down. But also you have these massive wages. Clubs can't really handle that. And then you get the league shut down for the latter half of 2021 from August to December. Uh the FA slash the government decreed that the Chinese Super League would be postponed, suspended, what have you, uh, so that the country could focus on qualifying for the World Cup so the national team could get more training time. How that, that didn't work out, but lots of disruptions across the board. <laughs> yeah, that's, that was a bit of a disaster. 2021 season cut from 30 games uh, to 22 games to help China uh, in AFC qualification. Um, China's national team has made one World Cup in 2002. You may remember they lost all three games there. Uh, they've I never won... That. They've never won the AFC Asian Cup. Uh, they were run in 2004. Uh, they're hosting that one next year. So, Taylor, if we were to summarize the failure here of these clubs, it's perhaps a combination of the economy and things like Evergrande having trouble in the real estate um, field and that crash, and also yeah. a massive, massive U-turn from the government and from the FA in terms of the strategy of this league, going from, we'll throw money at this to... Salary caps and yeah. 100% taxes on imported players and, you know, even taking the names of companies, commercial businesses from names. That's, that's a massive U-term in approach, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think COVID also has to be mentioned at this point because that is a big factor here, both for the game because you have to suspend the league. You don't get match day revenue. And that is a thing that a lot of these clubs were uh, dependent on, at least to some extent. But then also with a lot of these real estate development companies uh, with COVID, you're, you're just you're not having as much money. You're not doing as much building. There aren't as many projects as you're trying to deal with a pandemic. And so I think that also is partially responsible here for a, a pretty sizable economic downturn. And so to Graham's point, you have retrenchment, the focusing on do what you do well uh, and get rid of all the other stuff. And soccer is an easy one to get rid of, uh, especially when these clubs, teams, owners are just hemorrhaging money. And uh, we'll, we'll touch again on Suning, the owners of Jiangsu, who we mentioned there won in 2020 and went bust shortly thereafter, the team did at least. Um, and Tarek Panja at the end, uh, New York Times saying that Miranda, the Brazilian defender at Jiangsu, was owed more than $10 million when yeah. Jiangsu was closed Yikes. down. Good luck getting that back. Um, but they, they are also owners of Inter Milan, as we've mentioned. Taylor, um, is there a knock-on effect from this uh, downturn in Chinese soccer to Europe? Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, look at what happened with Inter when they win the title. Uh, Steven Zhang, who's the chairman of Inter Milan, his father is the owner of Suning, or was until he had to step down. Uh, Steven Zhang, chairman of Inter, is out there celebrating as they win the Scudetto. It's really exciting. The next time he addresses the team is to ask them if they will forgo two months' wages because things are tight. Uh, basically, the other thing that we should mention here is uh, Xi Jinping was not... That's how I've been told to pronounce it. I'm not sure if that's accurate, but that's what I'm going with. Uh, also didn't love how much money was going out of China. The idea here was to keep the money in China to develop Chinese football. If you got to spend a little bit to bring players in, fine. If you got to buy some clubs or invest in clubs to create those connections to see how you're supposed to run a league or an organization, fine. But when it happens too much and there's too much money going out of the country, that was not fine. And so there's belt tightening across the board. Inter is a good example, though uh, Zhang remains the chairman. Uh, that is only because he gets a, a bridge loan of 275 million euros can't use that for transfers, can only use that to pay down debt, which is why you end up having Antonio Conte walking away, why they have to sell Ashraf Hakimi, why they have to sell Romelu Lukaku. And though things are okay for now, there was this period of time where they were just, again, throwing money at players. Their salary goes up. I think their wages goes up 74 million euros in four years. In 2020, their wage bill uh, hit 198 million euros per season. That is a lot of money. Uh, they make decisions like signing Luciano Spalletti. Uh, he secures fourth place on the final day of the season. They give him a three-year deal. They sack him nine months into that new deal uh, and until he took another gig, which he now has. But for the longest time, he was due 25.8 million euros. And if you are the Chinese government, you are not thrilled that one of your companies is the one who is footing the bill for that one. So there have been some austerity measures. There's been some loans. I don't know how it ends up working for Inter long term, but you can see the disruption playing out in Inter's squad right there. What I, what I don't quite get is how they... Did they approach this thinking this was sustainable, this uh, this bubble effect that they created, uh, China? I mean, Xi saying, you know, being concerned with uh, money going out of the country and paying Carlos Tevez 800 grand a week to gently jog around the field and go to Disney World when he's supposed to be playing games, which is a thing that <laughs> happened. Um, it, it's, it just seems a really unsustainable approach. Is there not, Taylor, is, is there a an idea that they thought would do this for a few years and then we'll tighten the belt? Maybe it was deliberate to go this way. Um, it may have been. I doubt it was deliberate to go this far and then pull it back this much. But yeah. I think if you look at some of what Zhang has done at Inter, they have, uh, they, they're trying to kind of function as a conglomerate these days. They set, like, set up an in-house media and public relations, uh, entity for the club, but also for other celebrities in Italy. And I think they are trying to diversify the portfolio. And I think that was part of the plan is you find ways to make money abroad with these football clubs, with the branding of these football clubs. I believe even correct in saying that uh, it was after Suning took over Inter that they sued Inter Miami for copyright infringement. So I think you can see how there were ideas about how they would make money. Mm. But I think ultimately it goes back to they thought they had the resources necessary to build up this kind of footballing empire and infrastructure, and they ultimately have not or do not. I, I do think there are still some reasons for optimism if you are a fan of Chinese football, but I think it will be a much slower and more deliberate process. And even then, we may end up just seeing things uh, changed on a whim. Well, let's so head you, in that you're... direction. Uh, Graham, I'll, I'll come to you on that. Um, sure. 
the the season was suspended at the end of the season last season. It looks like this current season will be starting in April from what we can tell. What does the future look like? Are there reasons for optimism? Could this league rise again, so to speak? Um, it could. It could. I mean, the, the, the Chinese Super League and the Chinese government... We can talk about how they've got to this point, whether it was ever meant to be this way, whether it's been by design. But right now, they, it seems like they've placed a bet on producing Chinese players that will eventually make the elite level of of, of the sport. Um, if that succeeds, then I guess it's only natural that the, the CSL will become one of the, the highest quality, if not one of the biggest leagues around. So I guess that would be a, a route to success. The problem, and, and I do see it as a problem, for the the CSL is is just how closely that league and those clubs um are are tied to the Chinese government. Um, that that it just means to me that the league is always at the mercy of of political whim, and we've seen that over over the space of of, of five years. Taylor, you say that uh, she, you know, he he wants companies to pull out of um European soccer, and that is absolutely true. I've read that reporting as well. But three, four years before that, mm. he's actively encouraging them yeah. to get involved in European soccer. And I, I just think any any business, not just soccer, but particularly sporting businesses, you can't really operate without that a level of continuity. And and so I do, you know, imagine if the Premier League's fortunes were dependent on whoever was in number ten Downing Street, uh, you know what what they wanted out of that league. It just it just wouldn't be a situation that is conducive to the establishment of of a thriving sporting enterprise. So. I think that's one of the things that that is holding back that league. Obviously, that is tied in with a lot of uh, Chinese society. Uh, That's not just something that is um, isolated to soccer, far from it. But uh, I do think that is something that... If we're talking about the, the Chinese Super League being the next Premier League... I I just don't see it with that with that structure. You need to give some uh, autonomy to the to these clubs. Yeah, and and Graham, I, I totally agree with you. And and to your I think very early point about the kind of the history of soccer that there's not a ton of, of footballing history when it comes to China. A lot of that change has been, as I understand it at least, from the government, and that means there have been more football pitches. Uh, I've never been to China, but as far as I understand, Chinese cities, pretty crowded. Not a ton of open space for playing football, and so you're relying on the government to build these these facilities. They don't have uh, soccer pitches all over the place. There are other sports that are more popular, that are more... Uh, like size appropriate, essentially badminton, ping pong, very popular, soccer less so. So you need the government to build the facilities, to build that infrastructure, and in a lot of ways to fund a lot of these players who are moving to academies or learning how to play soccer at a younger age. And if you have a government that changes its decision or changes the direction, and like to make it an even absurd, absurd level, if they're obsessed with Man City and they want to play like Pep, and then they decide, never mind, we want to play like Atletico. Like, does the entire... Uh, country's infrastructure and the way they approach soccer have to change? Like, I don't know. But I think to your point, if you don't have these things happening organically out of demand or at least with some level of freedom and structure in place, I think you're going to run into some problems pretty quickly as we've already talked about. So so the tide has turned with the Chinese Super League from overspending and luxury to a more grassroots and austere approach, I think. And this, this, yeah. there's, a, there's a, a desire to grow things organically. But I don't think that necessarily means that, uh, you know, it's, it's a dark future for Chinese soccer because, mm. Taylor, take, take the example of the Olympics and the stories you hear about how uh, Olympic athletes in China are essentially trained from birth mm-hmm. and the investment and the financial doping, if you will, that they put into Olympic sports to get Olympic medals for political reasons or otherwise. There's 
if, if GC, if President, President Xi sees soccer as, you know, uh, as an important means of rising to be the superpower that China aspires to be, which it certainly does, then they could use the same approach for the Olympics with soccer in terms of yeah. grassroots organic growth. I think, like, if if we see this in a vacuum for a moment, there is absolutely a world in which what the Chinese Super League and what Chinese football as a whole is doing right now makes a lot of sense. We hold up the Bundesliga as this model of self-sufficiency of the way football clubs are supposed to be run, of the way leagues are supposed to be run. You can't just have a team come in and put their their name. You can't just have the Red Bulls. At the very least, you have to have a workaround, and that's why we have RB Leipzig. I think you see what China's doing, and, and it makes sense. If you want to remove some of that corporate connection, some of that corporate money coming in, but make them their own standalone entities, that makes sense to me because you're requiring them to then function as businesses, football clubs, whatever you want to go with, but you have to make your own money. You have to worry about match day revenue and how do you expand your footprint? How do you get people interested? Maybe it's foreign signings. Maybe it's developing your own, but you are forcing these clubs to basically function on their own as opposed to being given a blank check and then being told, okay, now go play football. And so I think that combined with this emphasis on grassroots development, we don't know how much that's happening, to what degree, and to what degree successfully. Uh, A lot of the reporting all seem to use the same phrase, which is, should pay dividends by the end of the decade? I don't know which I'm assuming this decade, uh, but some of those articles were written a while ago, so who knows? Um, but I, I think there is an idea that with this emphasis on on youngsters, on yeah, developing kids at a younger age, there will be a stronger team maybe a decade from now or maybe yeah. a little bit sooner than that. But that seems to be the way things are going. And again, seen in a vacuum, that makes sense, but we're not in a vacuum. And so I still am a little bit uncertain as to whether or not that's actually happening. I, I think it's much more realistic that China by 2050, and I'm not saying this is terribly realistic, but I think it's much more realistic that they win a World Cup by 2050 than they have a, a global league that we're all watching yeah. and is and is usurped the, the Premier League. Because as you say, Ryan, the Olympic program, you know, you can talk about the downsides of that in terms of how they treat those those young kids and the, the, men, the mental health of those kids. And I've, I've read a lot of exposés around that, which paints a pretty bleak picture of that whole program. But if we're looking at it in isolation and a vacuum of, is it producing world-class Olympians? Then absolutely. And if you apply that to uh, soccer, I, I do think it is feasible that they could have a pretty strong national team uh, within the next kind of couple decades. They probably need to get a move on by now. We're in 2022, but <laughs> I, I do think that is feasible, more feasible than creating a, a new Premier League in that time. I also think there there will continue to be a reliance, for better or for worse, on naturalizing players. They naturalized three for this current World Cup team, uh, at least three that I can think of, um, all of whom play in attacking positions as a number nine or a number 10. They're either goal scorers or creators, and that's historically where the team has struggled. That hasn't made a big difference. As we've already said, China eliminated from 2026 World Cup qualifying. But I think that will also be part of this approach, would be to bring in younger foreign players and eventually uh, naturalize them. Uh, Two that they're working on right now, uh, Ricardo Goulart and Elkison, uh, are both should be able to help qualify for the 2026 World Cup, which will also be expanded, lest we forget more clubs, clubs going or national teams going to that one, means that there will be more opportunities for China to potentially make it to a World Cup. So I think we'll the- see naturalization and development that way. We will see very much focused on like Chinese development, and I agree with you, Graham. I think we'll see a league that is 
very, very focused on Chinese domestic players versus bringing in big names from abroad. And I think we could well see a very competitive team down the road, but I think it will take a good amount of time. The thing that could accelerate it is if China wins a World Cup bid. And I compare it to Qatar. When Qatar won that World Cup bid, where was their national team at that point? Mm -hmm. At that moment, they go, oh, right, we're actually going to need a team that's going to be competitive. And now Qatar are the Asian champions. They they won yeah. that they won that confederation. So if you you look at the size of Qatar and the size of China, then you know if you, if you uh, multiply that that acceleration, mm-hmm. there, I think uh, China could be quite strong. If 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 there if there's some joined up thinking, I think there has been some joined up thinking in Qatar with their national team. If they if they replicate that, I do think China could be quite strong. Yeah, I mean the U.S. Another example of that. No, no league uh, until '96. We get the World Cup in '94, but it kickstarts that interest and it kickstarts the development. Yeah, Graham, I think that's a great, mm. a great point. So I guess 2030, 2034, maybe is where they're going to be looking. We shall see. All right, Taylor. Um, I, I'm going to finish up by uh, asking you a devil's advocate question. Mm-hmm. Ta- Taylor, you and I in February 2020 in New York attended an MLS. Uh, pre-season uh, press conference of sorts with Mr. Beckham and a few yes. other people, uh, during which I believe uh, one of uh, Beckham's co-owners into Miami said that he expected Quite the months. league. Yes, correct. Uh, he, he expected the league um, within twenty-five years to be as big as the Premier League. I might be slightly misquoting, but it was it was a, a big um, expectation for MLS. The, to, the to, only way you're misquoting him is that he might have said a, a smaller number. Right, of years perhaps, yeah. Um, Because it was the 25th anniversary, was it not? I think he was maybe saying in another 25. Maybe that's where I got that number from. But the point was he had big, big ambitions for MLS going above the European leagues. Is it more likely that happens or China wins a World Cup by 2050? No. (laughs) (laughs) Can that be my answer? I would say it is... In my opinion, it is more likely that MLS uh, overtakes the Premier League than China wins the World Cup. And that's not because I like have a firm opinion on where China is as a footballing country. It's just really hard to win the World Cup. Not a lot of teams have done it. And historically, it is big teams who have a ton of talent behind them. Um, it's why the United States and their Project 2010, remember when the U.S. was going to win the World Cup by 2010? That didn't happen. Uh, I think setting out those sort of long-term goals don't always end up being rooted in reality, uh, nor do targeting the Premier League for the biggest uh, league in the world. But maybe the Premier League falls off, and then it's way easier to overtake them, and that's how it happens. But I guess I would go MLS overtaking the Premier League, and I feel weird saying that. All right. Well, t- for the record, I think the US did win the World Cup in 2010. They got that draw with England, and Scotland seemed to think that was the equivalent of winning a tournament when they did that. So, um, gotta yeah. get one in. Gotta get one in. <laughs> I did it. Even, I did it. Uh, even on 101s. Indeed. I think we have pretty comprehensively, co- comprehensively covered the rise, the Wait, fall, and the future. Don't, of- don't just put it on me. What does Graham say? I don't know what Graham says. Graham? Uh, 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 I'll go with China winning the World Cup hey, because why not? Why for not? For balance purposes. <laughs> you, you just don't want to be disappeared, you jerk. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm laughing, but uh, I should, probably shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. On, on that note, let's get out of here pretty quickly. Yep. Um, thank you very much, Taylor, for your contributions uh, on the rise, the fall, and the future of Chinese soccer. My joke was that I'd been disappeared. Thanks, buddy. Right back at you. <laughs> Grand, thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you, Lister. We'll be back with another 101 very soon. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.